0: Uh, if you would please grab a copy of God's word open to Matthew chapter 2 it is a good great joy for me to be able to to bring God's word to you this advent season I'm much looking forward to to sharing with you all today's text will be Matthew 2 verses 1 through 12 again Matthew 2 verses 1 through 12 this is the word of the Lord now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of Herod the king behold wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying where is he who has been born king of the Jews for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him when Herod the king heard this he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God's guidance through it this morning. God and Father, thank you that you speak to us, your people through your word, that we have access to you and access to your word, that we might know you and know the way that you have been working in history to save us, your people. Be with us this morning, guide us through your word, encourage us, comfort us, challenge us, make us more like your son, Grow in us the hope that comes from being citizens of his good kingdom. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I don't want to be in a battle, Pippin told Gandalf, but waiting on the edge of one that I can't escape is even worse. Dread is a kind of anticipation. It's not one that we often associate with the Advent season, and nonetheless, it is one kind of waiting and longing. In Lord of the Rings, the return of the king, Tolkien presents for us the siege of the city Minas Tirith. And the city is filled with men who dread the the armies of evil that surround them. And that dread drives some to courage and some to cowardice. And the greatest form of cowardice is found, unfortunately, in the leader of that city, steward, not king, a man named Denethor. And as Denethor and his, his people look at the threat that comes before them and anticipate it with dread. Uh, We see them, uh, again, challenged to either rise in courage or turn to cowardice. Denethor is an interesting character in this moment because he's not only dreading the coming armies that face his city, he also dreads something else. He dreads the coming of the true king of that city. The king who those in the city are aware of Look for his coming with longing. This king, when he comes, might deliver us from the enemies that surround us. But Denethor does not look forward to the coming of this king. Fear and cowardice eventually drive Denethor to madness, and he takes his own life. I don't mean to spoil a 70-year-old book and a movie that is 20 years old, if you can believe that. But Denethor and the people of Minas Tirith demonstrate for us anticipation that parallels, interestingly, The anticipation that's found in Matthew uh, 2 here for us. Advent is the, the season where we anticipate the coming of good King Jesus, who brings peace on earth, goodwill to men. But the coming of Jesus, though it is good news to the world, is not good news to every individual in the world. It's good news to the people of Christ, those who belong to his kingdom. But the coming of the Messiah is bad news for his enemies. And in this passage in Matthew 2, uh, we see both kinds of anticipation. Uh, We see two different kinds of anticipation. The anticipation of those who are the enemies of Christ and the anticipation of those who are his people, who rejoice at his coming. And in those two different kinds of anticipation, we see one point clearly demonstrated for us, and that is that Jesus alone is the King of Kings. Jesus alone is the King of Kings. We're going to, we're going to build to that point first by looking at verses one through three and and seeing how the Jewish heart in Jerusalem was not ready for the coming of the Messiah. Matthew starts off this passage by kind of giving us some facts, setting the stage, introducing characters, placing us in history. Uh, The first thing he tells us is that Jesus has been born. Uh, Jesus has been born. We're not told as much in Matthew as we're told in Luke. Uh, the familiar Christmas story uh, that we all know and, and remember this time of year is found in most detail in Luke's gospel. But here we see it nonetheless. Jesus is born. The prophecies of the Old Testament and the promises of Matthew chapter one have been fulfilled. the The Christ child is with us. The second detail is that Herod is the king. Jesus was born under the reign of Herod. That's significant for two reasons, theologically and historically. One. We're placed in a particular time in history that can be validated and confirmed uh, by other sources. This is a story that happens in real history with real consequences for the history of humanity. And secondly, uh, Herod being king has a theological significance. As we go through this story, we'll see Herod respond and act in certain ways. Is he going to act the way that the king of the Jews ought to act or will he not? And finally, uh, in the opening verse of this chapter, we're told that wise men from the east have arrived in Jerusalem. Um, these wise men have come to see the Messiah. Now, before we look at verses two and three, I wanna spend a little bit more time thinking about the wise men or, or the magi, as you may have heard them called in the past. That word, magi, is what is translated in the ESV and other uh, translations of the Bible as wise men. Um, they're significant characters whose inclusion tells us a variety of things. First, we're told that these Magi are from the East. Uh, these men are outsiders. They're, they're pagans. They are not a part of God's people, Gentiles. Not only are they Gentiles, but they are from the East, probably from the areas of the world that were formerly the Babylonian and Persian empires. These men are, are foreigners. They're outsiders to God's people and even enemies historically of the people of God. But that's not it, these, these men from the east are magi, they're wise men, and that doesn't mean simply smart folks from the other side of the Jordan River. Uh, no, the wise men, the magi, that word has two connotations that are significant for us here. First, is that these men are from the ruling class of these eastern countries. The magi are royalty. And in Matthew 2, 1 through 12, Matthew sets up a comparison. We are meant to contrast and compare the king of the Jews with these royal men from the east. Two different earthly kings will respond in different ways to Jesus, who is the king of kings. This royal class are not merely rulers, they're not merely kings, they're also magicians. Magi is the word where we get that from. Magician might not be a helpful word. They're diviners or astrologists. They practice an art that was condemned by God's word in the Old Testament. The Mosaic law condemns the, the practices, the, the reading of the stars, the interpreting of dreams, that these men would have been practitioners of, were introduced to foreigners who are enemies of God's people, who are enemy kings, who are practitioners of some sort of divina- divination that is not friendly but condemned in God's word. As we are made to compare these two kinds of kings, certainly Matthew is setting a, setting up some expectations. Who is going to notice and observe and see and respond to the king of the Jews, the king of kings correctly? Will it be Herod and the rulers of Jerusalem? Or will it be these outsiders, pagans, foreigners, enemies, people who do things that God forbids and condemns? Now their inclusion isn't meant to whitewash or belittle or downplay the the arts of the diviners and the astrologers of the East. God is not saying, by presenting the Magi in a positive light, that the stuff they were up to was okay. The Old Testament condemns that kind of thing pretty clearly. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. Not only do we see that the the observations of the Magi condemned, we also see the kind of men that they are uh, demonstrated um, in various texts. We see in Joseph and Daniel that these wise men from the East are impotent. Kings want their dreams interpreted. They want wonders told. And it is only God's prophets who are able to give them what they want. Time and again, Joseph has shown to be successful where foreign uh, astrologers fail. Daniel, similarly. Their inclusion then uh, and their their, uh, bringing uh, of these men from the east to Jerusalem is to demonstrate similarly what Joseph and Daniel demonstrate. It's not the, the wisdom or the particular skill of these wise men from the east that bring them to Jerusalem. These men are brought from afar before Jesus by God's prophecy, given and fulfilled. It is the promise of the star that indicates the birth of the Messiah that draws these men from the east to Christ. These foreigners come because they see a prophecy fulfilled. We're going to return to that star in a moment. It's interesting and, and important. Uh, but it's important to more important now to notice that these foreign men do not come before Jesus because they are so powerful and so wise they come because they see God's sign promised and they follow it they obey it and again uh their their inclusion has another significance for us here this morning these magi from the east again outsiders are brought before the messiah contrasted with with Herod and the king and the people of the Jews And their inclusion in the story, again, notes some historical and theological significance. These men would have been despised, for all the reasons that I've said already, uh, by the Jews. You would only include someone so despised, so unfriendly to your people if they were actually there. Matthew is loading this story with details that give it historic reliability. It happened in a particular place and time, and I'm including inconvenient details that would only be included if they were true. Matthew wouldn't shine a positive light on the Magi unless they were actually there and actually to be viewed positively. And next, their inclusion foreshadows and begins to introduce us to something that Matthew does throughout the rest of his gospel. We see as these foreigners are brought before the Messiah, the promises of the Old Testament, where God's people would not only be ethnic Israel, but would include the nations. Gentiles would be included in the kingdom of God with the coming of the Messiah. And as these Gentiles come before and bow before the King of the Jews, Jesus Christ, we see that promise beginning to be fulfilled. Those who are outsiders are being brought in. And the, the Magi included in this story indicates that reality. And when the Magi come, going on to verses two and three, they come to Jerusalem because the time is ripe. Uh, A lot of what Pastor Matt's past sermons in Advent have been about is about all of these signs and prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. The time has come. The thing that you have longed for is here. Matthew presents Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, the fulfillment of these prophecies of the Old Testament. Matthew's genealogy presents Jesus as the seventh seven, right? We have 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. That's six sevens. Jesus is the seventh seven, the perfect one who comes at the time uh, in history the, when the timing is ripe. The time is ripe for prophecies to be fulfilled. And in Matthew chapter 2, it is not Herod and the Jews who notice the ripeness of that timing. It's not Herod and the Jews who notice the signs that indicate the Messiah has come. It's these outsiders, these foreigners, these, uh, these kings from the east, enemies of the people of God. And when these these people from the outside see the sign, the star, and they come to Jerusalem, uh, they go where we might expect them to go. Uh, They come to Jerusalem and they go to Herod and they go to his court and they say to him, hey, Herod, we have seen the star. Could you please show us where the king who is born is? And I think that 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 move is rather bold. It's more bold than we might recognize. You have foreign kings, foreign rulers who walk up to a king surrounded by him, surrounded by his court, surrounded by his Guard, And they say, it's good to see you, king. Could you please be so kind to point us in the direction of the real king, the actual one? It's nice to see you. Where's the real deal? It's a rather bold move. And, and, and such a bold move would only make sense if these magi had a reason to be so bold. And they did. We've, we've mentioned already they had a star. There was a, a star that was going to indicate when the king was born. And they saw it and they followed it. But the, the Magi seem to have another assumption that makes them bold, makes them bold to go before Herod and ask about the Messiah. Because when they go and ask about the Messiah, they tell Herod that they want to see him so that they might worship him. They don't, just, they don't come merely out of political interest or out of uh, an interest in seeing signs fulfilled because they're Magi after all. They've come not just to find the king, but to bow before him. Now that word worship in Matthew, it can mean anything from, from bowing before the king, recognizing his authority over you, all the way to worshiping the one true God. And it's significant to note that in Matthew's use of that word, he tends heavily towards uh, using it as a, an act of worship, bowing before God who alone deserves worship. In this passage, we'll talk about it several times, we don't know exactly how aware these magi are of the fullness of Jesus' divine identity. But they do come with a desire to bow before him, recognizing his authority over them and also worshiping him as one who is greater than they are, whatever that may mean. So these magi from the east come to Herod, they ask where the real king is and they tell him that they want to worship him. Surely they're expecting the king of the Jews and the Jewish people themselves to share in that excitement. The prophecy for your king Is fulfilled. We're we're pumped to see the king of the Jews. Can you show us where he is? You must know, you must share our excitement and our desire to bow before him. But when they share the news of the star, that's not the response that they get. No, we read that Herod, and not just Herod, but all of Jerusalem with Herod, are troubled by the arrival of this king who is born. And I think what is significant here, uh, we see demonstrated by Herod and the people of Jerusalem, something that recurs all throughout both Scripture and the history of the church. And that is that God's people go astray when they forsake his word. These magi from the East knew more about the Messiah with less of God's revealed word than the people of Jerusalem. They had one prophecy about a star and that drew them across the ancient world to Jerusalem because they wanted to see this king. And Herod and the Jews, who had all of God's revealed word, had no idea that the Messiah had been born. They missed the sign. They missed the Son. They were ignorant and unaware of the coming of the Messiah. Far too often, God's people forsake God's word and miss what God is doing. And Because of their unfaithfulness and their forsaking of God's word, the people in Jerusalem were led astray. And they're troubled by the news that the Messiah has been born. It seems that the wicked and rebellious generation that we read about throughout all the gospels does not merely start when Jesus proclaims his kingdom and his public ministry. The opposition to Jesus does not start when Jesus starts teaching and the Pharisees don't like what they hear. The wicked and rebellious generation into which Christ was born was in opposition to him from the very moment of his birth. In Matthew chapter two, we have expectations set and expectations shattered. It is foreign and pagan kings who recognize and respond to the promises of God, not the king of the Jews, not the priests, and not the scribes. So let's now look at this star, this sign that was rejected by the Jews and seen by these Gentiles as a way of transitioning to the next idea. You might be wondering where the prophecy that a star would mark the Messiah's birth is found. It's not in Isaiah where you might expect it to be. It's not from Jeremiah either. This prophecy of a star is found in the book of Numbers, but it's not Moses who gives this prophecy. No, this prophecy comes from Balaam. Balaam is a pagan prophet sent by a foreign king to condemn God's people. He's the one, you may remember, who talked to a donkey, a talking donkey. It's Matt, Pastor Matt did not get a talking donkey last week, but I get one, it's Balaam. And, uh, and he is the one, after talking with this donkey, who prophesies about the star, a foreign and pagan prophet foretells of a star that foreign and pagan prophets see and follow to the Messiah. Let's read that prophecy from Numbers 24:17. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. It's this prophecy that the Magi, who would have been the enemies of God's people, who would have had a reason to fear the coming of this king, But instead, when they heard this prophecy and saw it fulfilled, they came to bow before the king, the one who was born in in Jerusalem or near Jerusalem. The Magi respond positively to the prophecy fulfilled. Herod, Herod and all of Jerusalem with him are troubled by it. Let's move on to verses three through eight and see how Herod and the Jews forsake all plausible deniability. Right, so so far we have foreign kings coming to Jerusalem and saying, where's the real king? Foreigners recognize God's Messiah, God's people reject him. Expectations again are set and overturned. And we know now what Herod does next. We're familiar with the Christmas story. We know the, the madness and the violence that Herod uh, commits and is committed to later uh, in this passage. But what if we didn't? What if we didn't know Herod's response to the Messiah? Couldn't he be reasonable if foreigners who have been historically the enemy of your people come to your city and say, the other king is born and we like him, doesn't that sound like it would be a threat to Herod and the people of Jerusalem? Wouldn't it be reasonable to be troubled that a new king has come and the enemies of your people like that king? If only Herod's reasons for being troubled were so honorable. Let's read again and see what it is about this newborn king that troubled Herod. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they told him, "'In Bethlehem of Judea,' for so it is written by the prophet, "'And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, "'for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel.'" Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come to worship him. What was it that troubled Herod? It was the Messiah himself. Herod heard the sign of the star had come, and he was afraid. And then he gathered the chief priests, and he gathered the scribes to him, and they diligently searched the scriptures to have their fear confirmed, and it was. Herod was not afraid of some generic threat to his power. He was not driven by rivalry to commit infanticide. No, it was explicit opposition against God's promised Messiah, Herod searched the scriptures to make sure that this king was the, the Christ. And once that was confirmed, that, that prophecy is from Micah 5.2, by the way, once he had confirmed the identity of this newborn king, that it was indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the promised king from God himself, that is what drove Herod to fear, to act against this baby boy. Herod is not merely a corrupt ruler. He is the God hating seed of the serpent who is driven by antagonism and not self preservation. He is the kind of king who dreads the coming of the Messiah, who fears the goodness of the King of Kings, and who plots in secret to have him destroyed. Notice that, that after he has his suspicions confirmed, Herod acts secretly. Remember what John tells us, that darkness hates the light, lest the light expose its evil deeds. Herod gathers the magi to himself in secret. And he asks them, how long ago has the star come? Go to Bethlehem, find the king, so that I may go and worship him. Herod wants to know how old this baby boy is, not so that he can worship him, but for more nefarious reasons. And he wants the magi to go and tell him where the king is. And he deceives them in secret. He tells them he wants to worship the king with him. That is not his intention at all. Herod acts violently and specifically against God's Messiah. And here we see a very difficult and key truth revealed in Herod's person. Something that the Bible teaches elsewhere, but something that is made very palpable here, is that man's rejection of God is not based in ignorance of God. It's not based in not knowing enough no, our rejection of God is based in a hatred of God himself. This is what the Bible says is true of us apart from the grace of God. This is what is true of all those who we hope to come to faith in Christ. We reject God because like Herod, apart from God's grace, we hate God and we hate his Messiah. That is why we reject the, the Prince of Peace himself. Herod reveals for us troubling truth about the human heart slaved to his sin. And Herod, after gathering the wise men to himself, sends them away. Let's go on to verses 9 through 11 uh, and see how these wise men were right. So again, Herod gathers the, the Magi to himself in secret, and then he sends them off to find the Messiah, plotting against him, seeking his demise. Uh, And and here in the narrative, our our main characters part ways. Herod and the Magi diverge from one another. We're going to focus on the Magi first, then we'll return to Herod for our last point. And and, uh, after the Magi meet with Herod, they go and they do find the Messiah. But interestingly, the Magi don't have to search diligently for him uh, as Herod has asked them to do. No, they are shown very directly where the Messiah is by a star, Now, I'm not an astronomer, and I haven't studied the heavenly bodies, the material or the immaterial, uh, but something interesting and unusual seems to be going on in this passage. Stars certainly can be used by folks to guide them. They're, They're imprecise guides, though. Sailors use stars to navigate the seas and the oceans they have for centuries. Slaves use the stars to guide them northward to liberty, to freedom. And outdoorsmen today even will use the stars to orient themselves in the wilderness, but stars do not tell you directly where to go. They they help orient you and they give you direction. They are not used for precision. And yet in this story, the star does not give merely north, south, or east to excuse me, to the magi. No, the star guides them directly to the doorstep of the Messiah himself. And the stars acted in anomalous ways all throughout the passage. In Matthew two two, we see that the star rose in the west. These magi in the east looked westward to Jerusalem and saw the star that marked the birth of the Messiah. But that's not how stars work. Stars like the sun move east to west in the night sky. This star acts supernaturally, unusually. And this fact has been noted by critics and apologists alike. Critics point to this and say, see, that's not how stars work. This story is a myth, it's made up. Stars don't rise in the West. Certainly something is wrong. And then apologists will use charts and, and uh, software on computers to reconstruct the night sky above Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, seeking to find the star or the planet or the comet that was used by the Magi to find Jesus in the West. But I think both of these practices, both of these thoughts are misguided. It seems pretty clear to me that whatever is going on in this passage, this star is not merely a natural phenomenon, but a supernatural one. And we shouldn't be embarrassed by that fact. The world is not just stuff. It would be pretty strange for us to be embarrassed about a supernatural star that guided wise men to the Messiah, who was born of a virgin, only then to turn around and defend the miraculous virgin birth and the miraculous divine identity of that son. God is working in supernatural ways. And we should chuckle at the skeptic and marvel at the goodness of God who broke into the natural order to guide men who wanted to worship his son directly to him. In the text, we read that as after the star had led them through the town of Bethlehem, it stopped, it took its stand over his house. Now I'm not sure exactly what that means. I'm not sure if this star was some angelic being. I'm not sure if it was a divine spotlight that shone down from a star precisely to the house that Jesus was in. But I do know that this star led them directly to Jesus' doorstep and that seems to be supernatural. If you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia, And uh, the voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's a star named Ramandu who descends from the heavens to talk with Caspian and the crew of the Dawn Treader at the end of the world. I'm not saying that the star in Matthew 2 is like Ramandu, but I'm not saying it's not either. I don't know what's going on, but I do know that God supernaturally guided these men directly to the Messiah. And when the Magi, who had traveled great time and distance to the Christ, found him, they did what they came to do. They worshiped him. They bowed before him. As the text says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Surely if we were trying to write something, we wouldn't be so redundant and so over the top. This kind of joy can only be the kind of joy uh, celebrated by men who just walked through a city with a star to find a divine baby. And when the Magi worship the baby boy Jesus, they do so in a way with gifts that are prophetically significant. They're as prophetically significant as the journey the Magi took itself. And again, we're not, we're not sure how aware the Magi were of the prophetic significance of their gifts. Maybe they were just bringing riches to a king because kings deserve riches. But however aware the Magi were of their gifts' significance, their gifts are significant. Let me quote a Christmas song that summarizes nicely what has, been, uh, what has had much written about it. Gifts from men from distant lands prophesy the story. Gold, a king is born today. Incense, God is with us. Myrrh, his death will make a way, and by his blood, he'll win us. Or for those of you less poetically minded, gold is a royal treasure given to Jesus, who is the king. In frankincense is a type of incense it's used all throughout the book of, of leviticus in the tabernacle to mark the presence of god jesus is god with us very literally because he is god himself and myrrh finally was used in burial jesus was the king who was born to di- <clears throat> excuse me to die All of these gifts and the bowing down of the Magi themselves demonstrate for us clearly who Jesus is. Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus is God himself. And Jesus is the savior who would give his life for his people. The Magi were right about who Jesus was and they show us by their action, by their long journey, by their trusting in the prophecies of God, their obedience to those prophecies, and their laying of these prophetic gifts before the young king. But, but the Magi were not alone in being right about the Messiah. Herod also was right in a way, it's our final point. Verse 12 tells us that these honorable Magi uh, leave Jerusalem, they leave uh, Judea without keeping the promise they made to Herod. And they do this not because they were lazy or, not, or decided not to, to keep their word to this king, No, they did so because of another divine intervention. An angel appeared to them in a dream and warned them. Go home, the angel said, and go home secretly. Certainly, this was a bumper week for men who studied the skies, looked for divine signs, uh, hoped for prophecies. They had followed a star across the world. They had walked through a city with that star and found a divine king in his uh, home with his mother. And now, at the end of it all, an angel spoke to him. Surely they were overjoyed. An unbelievable week for people who look for divine signs. Sadly, this last divine word was not one of joy as the others were. No, it was a warning. It was a warning that this, this, this king Herod was not to be trusted. And so the, the Magi again obey and they go home. But how does this flight of the Magi reveal something about Herod, some way that Herod was right? Herod was seeking to destroy the baby king, the young newborn king, because he believed him to be a threat to his power. When as we search the gospels, we think certainly Herod was mistaken. Herod had nothing to fear. Jesus is not a threat to Herod. Jesus did not come to lead armies with weapons against Herod or the Roman Empire. No matter how much some of Jesus' disciples are ready to draw their swords and follow him into battle, that's not what Jesus came to do, and that's not how Jesus came to bring his kingdom. And that is very true. That, that is a correct assumption. Jesus did not come to wage war with sword and spear against the powers of men. But that assumption is not entirely correct. If we look to the end of the Gospels, Jesus' uh, conviction and condemnation and crucifixion are all done on false trumped-up charges. The Jews falsely accused Jesus of blasphemy, a false charge because Jesus actually is God as he claimed to be. And the Gentiles who had power over the Jews at this time needed a reason to condemn him if, they were, if the Jews were going to put him to death. And the charge they falsely condemned him of was insurrection, threat to government power. And they, again, were wrong. This was a false charge brought against Jesus. He was falsely put to death. But the Gentiles were not as wrong as the Jews were. Jesus actually is God as he claimed to be. And though the Gentiles feared that Jesus had come, no matter how weakly they were convinced of this fact, to overthrow them, Jesus uh, did not come to do that again by sword or with army, but Jesus did come to bring the whole earth under his rule. Jesus' kingdom, which is not of this world, it's not one with battle, it is a kingdom that is present on this world. As we as we hear Jesus proclaim in the beginning of the gospel of Mark, the kingdom of God is at hand. I am the king. I'm bringing my kingdom now. Listen to our various Christmas hymns, the good news of the arrival of God's kingdom with its king Jesus. Christmas is the coming of the kingdom because it's the birth of the king. While Herod and the other powers of the ancient world were wrong about the means by which Jesus would bring his kingdom. They were right that Jesus' rule had implications for their power. Herod knew what many today don't, that Christ's reign has consequences for all of the rulers of the earth. Psalm two talks about them. It says, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Therefore, O kings, be wise, Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Remember, Herod searched the scriptures. He gathered his scribes and his chief priests to him. And he he sought the identity of this newborn king. And rather than choosing to bow before the son like these foreign magi did, Herod chose to take his stand against the Lord and his anointed. This puppet king of Rome chose similarly to Milton Satan. Milton Satan would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven, and Herod would rather serve the king of Rome than the king of kings. Jesus' birth marked a new authority, a new king, and Herod was threatened by that. Herod was threatened that his supreme power would be taken from him, but he did not ever have supreme power. He ruled underneath the Roman Empire. As we are so fond of saying here, sin makes us stupid and Herod, being right about the kind of authority that Jesus had and the kind of loyalty that he demanded, chose to oppose it. Christ comes as the hymn, let all mortal flesh keep silence reminds us, demanding homage, loyalty of all men. And Herod knew what we all know, what this psalm reminds us of, that refusal to bow before the king to recognize Jesus' authority is to willingly embrace being his enemy. And yet, out of a sinful love of sinful things, we, like Herod, reject and plot against the Son. Herod would would rather cling to his meager earthly rule in a small backwater of the Roman Empire than recognize the authority of the good King of Kings, the Messiah himself. And apart from the grace of God, we would be like Herod. We would rage against the Lord and against his anointed. And Herod's observation about Christ and his response to him calls us to recognize two things. First, see what Herod saw. See the true nature of Christ's authority, that he comes bringing his kingdom, demanding loyalty, homage of all. But don't be blinded by sin as Herod was. Look to Jesus and the kind of king and kingdom that he brings. The psalm reminds us, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Christ has come to bring peace on earth, to rid the world of the curse, to bring his glory as far as the curse is found, to conquer death itself. This is the kind of king that Jesus is. Don't be blinded by sin like Herod and rage against that king. Rest in him, trust in him, repent and believe in the good news of the coming of his kingdom. But Herod's example demonstrates not merely a salvific though that is the most important thing, it reveals reality. It reveals another one for this life, comfort for us. The Psalm, Psalm 2 calls the rulers of the earth to be wise, to serve the Lord and rejoice with trembling, to kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Herod refused this and his foolish refusal to rule as King Jesus would have him to rule, to rule under the authority of Jesus who is king, regardless of whether you recognize it or not. Herod's example is a warning. Be wise, rulers of the earth, of the United States of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Kiss the sun or perish in the way, bow before him, rule in a way that honors the one who is the king of heaven and earth. Most importantly for this life, Herod's rejection of Christ and Christ's rule in spite of that rejection reminds us of a good and comforting thing, that the tyranny of unjust rulers will not last and the injustice of wicked men in this world will not escape justice forever. Herod opposed the king, as do many rulers of the earth, but their power is under the king of kings nonetheless. So serve the king who, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism reminds us, not only subdues us to himself and rules us, but he defends us, and he restrains and conquers all of his enemies and all of our enemies as well. Salvifically, eternally, trust in Christ the king who comes to bring his good kingdom. And remember that he also rules the rulers of the earth and their wickedness will not escape his justice forever. Worship the son, find peace in the prince of peace. Look at the example of Matthew gives us of the Magi and of Herod. See the goodness and wisdom of the Magi who bow before the king of kings and the folly of Herod who rejects him. Follow the Magi and trust in Jesus, the only king of kings. Let's pray. God and Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the good reign and rule of your son Jesus who has come to liberate us, to conquer sin and death on our behalf and to subdue all his and our enemies. I pray that we would trust in him and rejoice in his coming and long for his return. Thank you for your word. In your son's name we pray, amen.